one of the things that I try to do with some degree of regularity is I try to invite people to, uh, to rest. Um, and that sounds a little bit um, out of the ordinary because I think some churches you go to, you know, to churches and maybe they invite you to work. You know what I mean? Like, hey, we've got some work for you to do. And, and the reality is that I really want you this morning to hear the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is always the same thing. It's never what you can do for God. It's always what's been done for us in Jesus. And so the invitation of Christianity is really an invitation to come and to rest from your labors and to trust in the labor of Christ on your behalf. We're glad that you're here this morning. I don't know why you're here, right? I mean, different people are here for different reasons, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, I honestly believe um, that regardless of what your motives are, that uh, our God is a God who draws us to himself. Uh, I believe that God woos us into his presence. And so it's my prayer today that God would woo you into his presence, um, that he would probably convict you of some brokenness and sin on your behalf, uh, but that he would also um, convince you through the power of his spirit that he's a good father, that he's a good God. And I pray also that his Holy Spirit would be at work in you, convincing you that uh, his son, Jesus, is your only hope. And it's really in Jesus' name that we're here this morning. So I'm going to ask any of you who would like to, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 16. Um, For those of you who don't have a Bible, it's going to be up on the screen, so you can read it up there. Uh, Last week, we talked about Christ our prophet. We talked about how one of the things that Jesus did was he told people the things that they did not want to hear, right? Like a good coach, like a good doctor, right? Both of those um, entities in our culture um, are people that tell us things that we don't really want to hear, right? But we need to hear. In fact, it would be unloving for those people not to tell us what's wrong with us, not to tell us our brokenness. And Jesus, as our prophet, does that. Jesus, you know, was very quick um, and very loving in pointing out to us our brokenness. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about Jesus as our priest, right? And so this idea of Jesus as a priest is very different But we get this idea of Jesus as our priest throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and particularly here in the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is our great high priest who gives us everything that we need in order to persevere and not give up. Let's jump into Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to just be looking at verses 14 through 16 very quickly. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, the invitation that you've given us this morning is an invitation in our time of need, our our time of despair, um, our time of recognizing that we do not have what it takes to hold on to you, to persevere, um, that we can come to you in our time of need and we can be reminded um, that you're the one that's holding on to us, um, that you are for us. And so, Father, I pray that the message of the gospel would come through uh, loudly and clearly today. I pray that the message of the gospel would be more loud and more clear Um, than the voices of our culture, than our own voices within us. Father, we pray all these things today today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, my wife, Krista, and I moved here to Rome just about 10 years ago this week. So, we've been here about 10 years. And uh, what makes that sort of interesting is that, you know, Krista is from Ohio. 
I'm from South Carolina, and so, you know, Rome, Georgia was not a place, you know, where either of us had family or really had friends. We came here almost like we've been dropped out of a parachute into a foreign land for the purpose of, uh, of starting a church where God's name would be lifted up and where the gospel would be preached. And so that's called a church plant, um, when you sort of fall into a place and you start a church. Well, the statistics on church planting are actually pretty bad. In fact, about 80% of all church plants fail. And, uh, and they fail for different reasons. They fail sometimes because they, you know, church plants are sometimes just actually church splits. And so sort of a faction leaves and tries to get up and going, and those fail sometimes. Sometimes they fail because whoever the pastor is, um, is really somebody who maybe has some narcissistic tendencies. I'm sure that I do, and you guys can confront me on those later. Um, but, you know, it's like a platform to get up and to be great and have people's attention and all this kind of stuff. And so a lot of times when the rubber meets the road or things get tough, those guys a lot of times are like, hey, I did not sign up for this. They fall away. You know, sometimes you get into ministry planting a church and you realize that, you know, the hours can be really hard and, you know, it's not like starting a business where eventually you start making tons of money. I mean, you know, there's certain things that just don't exist in church planting. There's all sorts of reasons for failure. There's all sorts of reasons why church planters don't sort of stick with it, why they do walk away, why they do give up, why they don't persevere. What's interesting, however, is what the statistics do show is the success rate for church planters who have a coach goes through the roof, and all of a sudden they're three, more, three times more likely to be able to persevere and to stick it out. And the reason for that is because when you have a coach, usually a guy who's already planted a church, who's sort of been there and done that, somebody who's somebody for you to talk to and sort of pour your heart out to, what ends up happening is that when you are tempted to give up, when you're tempted to despair, you can go talk to your coach and say, man, you know, these people are driving me crazy, you know, or, you know, I can't preach any more sermons. I've already preached my 18 good sermons that I had stored up from when I was a youth pastor. I don't have anything left. And you can go to, to, your, uh, to your coach and you can suffer. And you can just sort of be real about how you're doing. And what that uh, coach eventually or can do in the midst of that relationship is he can say, oh, man, I totally remember. You know, when I you know, was living in Arizona and we were planting this church, my wife and I, I got to about year three and I just wanted to quit. You know, or he can say, yeah, man, I remember the, you know, the day that I woke up and it was you know, a Saturday morning and I had nothing written for my sermon. I was scared to death. And, uh, and all of a sudden I had to you know, preach a sermon the next day and I was terrified. You know, he can go on and on, but what that coach can do ultimately is that coach can show you compassion, right? He can sort of suffer with you and go, man, I've been there. You know, I totally remember. You know, that coach can also encourage you and tell you, you know, here's why you should stick it out, right? That coach can come to you and can basically say, man, I'm here for you. I want to do whatever it takes to help you stick it out and be successful. And so again, the success rate uh, of these church planners who have coaches just goes through the roof, right? All of a sudden, they're given what they need to persevere, to stick it out. So it's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, sort of this whole theme of the book of Hebrews is perseverance. The whole, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is sticking it out you know, in the midst of persecution, sticking it out in the midst of wanting to give up because it's just too hard, sticking it out in the midst of just being exhausted, right? And here what we read in this passage is that though we are tempted to fall away, though we're tempted to leave our relationship with God, though we're tempted to walk away from Jesus, and, and let's face it, we, most of us in this room wouldn't be honest if we didn't at least think about that at some point in time. What we see in this passage is that because Jesus is our great high priest, he gives us everything that we need to stick it out. He gives us everything we need to persevere, especially when we want to give up, right? So let me, let me jump into verses uh, 14 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. The first thing that we're going to take a look at very quickly is that our high priest, as our high priest, Jesus has 
compassion upon us, right? As our high priest, Jesus has compassion upon us. Look at verses, really verse 15 here. He says this, and again, we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Historically, it's been attributed to Paul. Some people don't know, but the good news is it's been in sort of the canon, the corpus of Scripture since the beginning. But beginning in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. That Greek word there means to suffer with, right? Or it's sort of this idea of together emotion. The, the, the way it's translated is interesting, but the idea is that Jesus is able to have the same emotions that we have, right? He's able to uh, go through the same emotional range that we are. He goes on to say here, with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, right? And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is he's saying we can stick it out, we can make it, we can persevere because our great high priest has suffered like we have. He's able to empathize and identify with us, and that's powerful to have that, not only in a great high priest, uh, but ultimately to have in our Savior. Now, I do a lot of reading of psychology, um, usually Christian psychology, but I read you know, more broadly than that. And in the last five or six years, I read a book, and in this book, the book was sort of talking about our three core psychological needs, our three core psychological needs as human beings. And the first one the author was talking about is we all have a need to be loved unconditionally. We all have a need to be loved unconditionally. Um, scripture talks about being naked and unashamed. Like we were created to have that relationship with our spouse, to be naked and unashamed, to be loved unconditionally. And that's a, that's a massive need for us as human beings. The second thing that he talked about is that we need to know that our life matters. We need to know that our life has meaning, that it really matters, that somehow, even if we're playing a bit part, that it's interwoven into a larger, greater narrative, that our life has meaning. But the last thing this author wrote is that one of the things that's a core need for human beings is we all need to be understood, right? We need to have someone who understands what it's like to be us. And that is a powerful need. And when that need is met, it is amazingly fulfilling. What the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's encouraging us with the knowledge that Jesus understands us, right? He's encouraging us with the knowledge that Jesus can identify, that he can have this together emotion with us. He suffered in the same ways that we have suffered, right? He can identify with us physically, right? The, the passage here talks about his weakness, right? He's a, he can identify with our weaknesses, and that word means sickness, fatigue, or even frailty. And again, what the author is saying is, we have this high priest who's able to identify with us because he physically has been weak, and he's physically suffered in the same way that we have. Think about Jesus, right? He endured near starvation, right? He endured exhaustion, sickness, cuts, bruises, and scrapes. Jesus hiked the width and the length of Israel without Asics running shoes, without gel packs, without power bars, right? Without bottled water, right? He didn't have Tylenol, Ambien, no morphine. He has experienced the pain that we have suffered, and so he can identify with us when we suffer physically, right? He can identify with us emotionally. Isaiah 53, speaking about Jesus, says this, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, right? Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, his friends left. They didn't stick with him, right? He, he, was, he was abandoned, right? His people embraced and then rejected him. The very people that were supposed to love him and embrace him rejected him. At one point, his own mother thought he was crazy, right? We see that story in one of the Gospels. He suffered emotionally 
and relationally just like we do, right? But was without sin. And so again, what the author here is saying is we can come to Jesus, our high priest, and not give up because he, he, understand what is, he understands what it's like to suffer physically. He's been there. And not only that, he's saying we don't have to give up because when we come to Jesus, our high priest, he's suffered in the same way that we have emotionally and relationally. He's been there, right? He, he was rejected. He was abandoned by the very people that were supposed to love him. He's, he's seen it all. He went through it himself, and even spiritually, he can identify with us. We're told that he was tempted, right? We read in the story of the gospel that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, right? That Satan came and tempted him. We see that he was tempted in the garden of Gethsemane to give up and to choose a different way. We see that, that even he was tempted by Peter, right? When Peter said, hey, not you, Jesus. You, surely you're not going to die. And Jesus says, get thee behind me because Peter didn't know it, but what he was doing was tempting Jesus to another plan, another way, right? And so Jesus identifies with us in our spiritual temptation. So what does it mean that Jesus was tempted like us in every way but was without sin? Jesus was tempted to take another plan other than the plan that God laid out for him. Jesus was tempted to use his power for his own gain. Jesus was tempted to please men rather than God. Jesus was tempted to give in to fear. He was tempted to pity himself. He was tempted sexually. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. We are so uncomfortable with the humanity of Jesus, but it's the very humanity of Jesus that enables us to persevere because we can come to our great high priest and he will show us compassion because he can say, man, I've been there, right? I've experienced everything that you've experienced. I have suffered with you and so can I, I can identify with your pain and with your suffering. It's to this high priest that we pray. Does that make sense? Right, we can actually persevere because he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be me. The second thing we see in this passage is that our high priest, Jesus, provides us with mercy and with grace. Mercy and with grace. So let me read this passage, and then I'll talk about a couple things, but we'll look at verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let us approach the throne of God, expecting to find mercy and grace. Very quickly, mercy is when you're not given what you deserve, right? And so as a kid, um, you know, whatever you, I don't know, you disobeyed your parents, but your parents said, listen, I'm not going to spank you this time. I love you, and I want to show you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve, right? Grace is where you're given what you do not deserve, right? Maybe you had a child that, uh, you know, didn't do a particularly good job on their homework or didn't do a particularly good job on their grades, and you take them out to get ice cream anyway, right? That's what grace is. And so part of what the author here is saying is we can persevere. We can approach the throne of God with confidence because what he has for us through Jesus, our great high priest, is mercy and grace, right? Listen to this idea of the throne found in Revelation 20. And let me just, sort, this will sort of set the stage for you a little bit. The idea of coming before the throne of God with confidence. Verse 11 begins by saying this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, right? There's, a, there's sort of this experience of, of terror where the earth and the heavens flee. And there was no place for them. They couldn't hide anywhere from the throne of God. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Again, this is before the throne of God. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't know what that sounds like to you, earth and sky fleeing from God's presence, right? They couldn't hide from him. And then all of these people being judged and some of them being thrown into the lake of fire. That sounds terrifying to me, right? Maybe it's just me, but that sounds terrifying to stand before the throne of God. And yet listen to what the writer of Hebrews says to those of us who trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Verse 16, one more time says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, right? You don't have to go before his throne with fear. You don't have to go before his throne with insecurity or with doubt. We can go before his throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So whether it's in prayer or whether you stand, you know, at the end of time before God, you can stand before him receiving mercy and grace. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest. We're become to come before the throne of God with confidence. You know, you can come before the throne of God in prayer, those of you who trust in Jesus, because you realize that Jesus is for you. He's your great high priest, right? He understands your suffering, right? He understands your suffering physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And not only that, but what he has for you, what he wants to offer to you is mercy and grace in your time of need. And the amazing thing is that what we see in Scripture over and over and over again is that ultimately that we are judged, righteous, not based upon our record of failure, but rather based upon Jesus' record, our high priest's record on our behalf. And because our great high priest has declared us righteous, we can come before him, and what he has to offer us is mercy, and what he has to offer us is grace. That should be good news for a lot of us in this room, right? When you think about that judgment scene before the throne, you know, all of a sudden you can think back to junior high and high school and college and you know, when you were, you know, newly, you know, married or, you know, early in your business career, and you can think about your failures, or you can think about the things that you very actively did that you knew were wrong, that deserve judgment, right? And when you stand before God, trusting in Jesus as your salvation, your salvation, you need to hear Jesus declare, your great high priest declare, what I've got for you is mercy, what I've got for you is grace. That's the story of this book of Hebrews, it's the story of Jesus, our Savior. The last thing we see in this passage is, uh, is that ultimately that we can come before God with confidence, we can persevere to the very end, not only because he has compassion for us, not only because he has mercy and grace for us, but because ultimately what Jesus had for us was his final and our final sacrifice. Listen to verse 14. It says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we Profess. Let me read it one more time. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. In other words, we can hold on to that faith uh, with confidence, right? Priests sacrifice sins, sacrifice for sins over and over and over again. One of their main jobs was to present sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, what they did was they, they were essentially symbolizing that we're made right with God because somebody had to suffer and somebody had to die, and in this case, it was an animal. And, uh, and ultimately, what we see is this uh, priest, he not only is giving sacrifice for the sins of the people, but for his own sin as well. And in the temple, if you can imagine the temple there, there was all this furniture, right? There were lampstands, there were incense holders, there were all these different things, but there was no chair. 
And the fact that there was no chair or no seat symbolized that the work of the priest was never done. It was never finished, right? And so we come with that sort of idea to this passage about Jesus. And in this passage we just read, we read that Jesus ascended. In other words, he basically was saying when he rose, he said, I'm done, right? Mission accomplished. Salvation has been accomplished. Sacrifice has been accomplished. Nothing else is owed. It's been paid. Not only that, but we see in Hebrews chapter 10 that not only did Jesus ascend, and in doing so, symbolizing, I'm done here, my mission is accomplished, but we see in verse 10 that he, he sat down. Verse 10 of chapter 10 says this, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, and listen to this phrase, once for all. How many of you feel holy? How many of you feel holy, right? My guess is that if you're honest, that the vast majority of you in this room don't feel holy at all, right? If anything, you feel guilty, right? You maybe feel some self-loathing, right? Maybe you're acutely aware of the fact that you are not holy, and yet here we're told that we have been made holy, we've been declared holy by this final sacrifice of Jesus for his children. Verse 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, right, all time, one sacrifice for sins, the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to cover over all of your sins, past, present, and future, and not only your sins, but all the sins of all those who will trust in him. It says this, it says he sat down at the right hand of God. Again, symbolizing it's done, right? The account is paid in full. Nothing else is owed. Nothing else needs to be paid. In fact, you couldn't pay for it anyway. You can't pay for it. Nothing needs to be added to it. Jesus sat down symbolizing it's finished, right? It's paid in full. Verse 13, and since that time, he waits for his enemies, sin and death, to be made his footstool. He gets to prop his feet up on our greatest enemy, sin and death. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let me read that one more time. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the message of Hebrews, the message of our great high priest is that Jesus has paid it all, right? Paid in full. Nothing else is due. In 1882, there was a woman named Elvina Hall, and uh, here's a picture of her. Elvina Hall was uh, in the choir at her church. Uh, It was a Methodist church, And as the pastor was preaching a sermon, her mind began to wander. Not that our minds ever do that while I'm preaching, I'm sure. Anyway, sometimes my mind wanders when I'm preaching. That's weird. Anyway, but she's sitting up in the choir loft, and uh, and her mind began to wander. But it was at least wandering sort of about what the pastor was talking about. And uh, she had a hymnal, and in sort of the flyleaf of her hymnal, she said that I began to feel this song come to me. She began to jot down the words to the song. Um, And she said basically what was happening is that as she jotted down the words of the song, she was acutely aware of her own brokenness, her own rebellion, her own sin, but she was even more acutely aware of the fact that Jesus had done everything that was required forever to make her perfect in God's eyes. And she wrote a song um, that you will be familiar with. But here, I'm just going to read the words. The words are this, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it 
white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone, because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin had left this crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. In other words, what she understood very clearly was that the message of the gospel is this message that we have a great high priest who has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And the beauty and the majesty of the gospel is, is that our salvation is found not in what we do, but what has been done for us in Jesus, our great high priest, our great sacrifice. And so today, tonight, for the rest of your life, you can come to Jesus before the throne of God knowing that he has compassion for you, right? That he looks at you, and instead of looking at you with sort of furrowed brow and judgment, he looks at you with compassion because he says, man, I have been there and I know it is difficult, right? Being a human is is hard. The temptation, the physical suffering, the emotional suffering is miserable. It's painful. It's heartbreaking. But I know because I've been there, right? We can come before the throne of God, right? And rather than expecting judgment, we can come before the the throne of God and we, we meet with Jesus before that throne. We meet with Jesus in prayer and we can be reminded that what Jesus says is all I've got for you is mercy, All I've got for you is grace. It's all I've got, right? I earned it for you, right? Mercy and grace. And then ultimately, we can come before the throne of God, and we can realize that when we stand before Jesus and we pray, that regardless of how guilty we feel, regardless of how unholy we feel, we can be reminded that Jesus paid the price for our sins once and for all, forever, right? Never again to be paid. There's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing you need to do to add to it, right? And that's what we, we want to do. We want to add to it somehow with, you know, sort of our fidelity. We want to add to our, our sort of that, that account by sort of adding our goodness, adding our holiness. And Jesus simply says, Jesus, I've paid it all, right? This morning, we look around the room and we have tables with bread and wine. And uh, in our, the, the history of the church, Jesus commanded us to celebrate what various people call various things, but some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist, right? It's called different things. But ultimately, it represents the same thing. And what this meal of bread and wine represents is that Jesus paid it all, right? There's nothing else you owe. That when you come before God now, here at Seven Hills Fellowship, even preparing to take this meal, that God's declaration over you is that you are perfect, right? His declaration over you is that you are perfect. Because when you accept Jesus as your Savior, what happens is Jesus' perfection is taken and it's placed on top of you so that when God looks at you, he sees you as completely righteous, completely holy, completely perfect. The trade-off, however, is that our sins, past, present, and future, have all been placed upon Jesus, and he was punished in our place on the cross, right? But Jesus, again, did that willingly so that he could offer us mercy and grace in this meal. This meal is a declaration to you, to the people around you, but it's a declaration that you are now innocent, that you are not guilty, right? And so let me take a moment, and in a minute I'm going to read the words of institution, but I don't want that truth to pass you by, right? Because most of us in this room are plagued by guilt. Most of us in this room are plagued by our failings. Most of us in this room think, you know what, that one thing I did was too bad. Most of us in this room think, I did that one thing too many times. There's no way that God, that God can forgive me for that, right? Or most of us in this room think somehow, well, you know what? I knew better, 
right, because I was a Sunday school teacher, and I did it anyway, or I knew better, and I'm a Christian mom, and I did it anyway, right, or, you know, I'm in ministry, and I knew better, and I did it anyway. There's no way God can forgive me for that, surely, and the declaration of this meal is that Jesus paid it all, right? His perfect life, death, and resurrection is far, far greater than your sin. Does that make sense? You're, you're forgiven completely if you trust in Christ alone. Which, by the way, leads me to this last point. The last point is this. This meal actually isn't for everyone, right? Um, it is for, for those only who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, right? It's for those people who can agree with Elvina and say, Jesus paid it all for me. And so before you stand up and, and walk over to these tables and take either bread and wine or bread and grape juice, I just want you to let the gospel sink in. I want Jesus' declaration over those of you who trust in him alone. I want you to hear him say, you're perfect. I want you to hear him say that you're forgiven for all time. Right? I, want him, I want you to hear him say that you are holy. And I want his voice to be louder than the voices of the culture or the voices that reside inside your head. Let this meal of bread and wine um, shout down those voices within you. Hear now the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Um, that you gave us this visceral reminder of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace, um, of propitiation, that, um, that your wrath is not upon us, um, that you're no longer angry with us. Um, Father, I thank you that in this meal, um, you gave us a visceral reminder that you love us um, and that you look at us now and you see us um, as perfect and clean uh, because of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that as people... Um, sit in their seats. I pray that um, they would let the truth of your good news flow over them. Father, I pray that they would allow the, the truth of your son Jesus' life, death, and resurrection wash away um, their feelings of guilt, um, their feelings of rebellion. And in place of those feelings of guilt and of rebellion, I pray that, uh, that they would feel your presence and that they would feel your love and that they would feel your declaration um, of not guilty over them. Father, I pray that you would uh, empower us as a church to simply to your, the cross of your son uh, cling, cling for everything. So, Father, it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray all these things today. Amen.